This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this summer? Well, what the hell is going on this summer is we're continuing our summer reading series, What the Hell Should I Read This Summer? And we've scoured the world for the most interesting books for you to look at. And today we've got one of our favorite people on, Bjorn Lomberg, who has a fantastic new book called The Best Things First, The 12 Most Efficient Solutions for the World's Poorest and Our Global SGG Promises. Bjorn, as many of you know, runs the Copenhagen Consensus, which is a think tank. And what he does as his main body of work, is to go and find what are the things that out of a cost-benefit analysis that we can get the most bang for the buck, that we could help the most people, lift the most people out of poverty, educate the most people, create the most good for the lowest amount of cost. He's gone through a rigorous process, and he's come up with 12 great ideas about how we can make the world better for a very small amount of money. So many of the nonfiction books that we read about good solutions for government, good solutions for the poorest among us, good solutions to do good things are preachy, expensive, dogmatic, and ideological. This book is none of those things. It's a great read. It is just sort of Bjorn at his most practical, and that's really you know, the kind of idea that does the most good for the most people at the least cost. I love that. Well, the subhead of the book is if you want to make the world better, this is the book to read. So let's just get right to it, Danny. I don't think we need, uh, we we don't need to rant here. Let's uh, let Bjorn have his say. Why don't you introduce us? Bjorn Lomborg is the president of the think tank Copenhagen Consensus Center and the former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute. He became internationally known for his best-selling book, The Skeptical Environmentalist. And the reason we've had Bjorn on before is we've talked about those environmental and climate change-related issues. He's listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. And his most recent book, the book we're talking about today, is Best Things First, The 12 Most Efficient Solutions for the World's Poorest and Our Global SDG Promises. Here's our interview. Bjorn, welcome back to the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks. Well, we're here to talk about your new book, and you're, you are famous for telling people what they shouldn't be doing, and here you've got a book of positive ideas of things we can do to make the world better at very low cost. Talk to us about why you wrote this book and what the genesis of it is and what you're trying to get across. Well, thank you. And first of all, I'm, I'm just going to mention the book's name, Best Things First, and, and it really about exactly as you say to also talk about what should we be doing. Actually, this is what I do for most of my, my work, is actually try to focus on where can we spend money and do a lot of good for the world. But in most of the rich world, unfortunately, most of the focus is on the stuff we shouldn't be spending money on, where we spend tons of money and don't get very much bang for our buck. But if you look around the world, there are plenty of problems 
you know, people are still dying needlessly from a lot of infectious diseases like tuberculosis, malaria. There's terrible education. There's still a lot of women and children that die around childbirth and on and on. And all of these, it turns out, we can do a lot about for very little money. So this book is really about where can we spend money and do an incredible amount of good. And you know, so one of the things that we've found is an education. Right now, the world has, for the world's poor half, so the 4.1 billion people who live in low and low middle income countries, they have almost half a million kids in primary school. Unfortunately, most of these kids are just not learning. They're in the school, but they're not learning. And so the question is, is there a way to make them learn more? And the simple answer is, yes, there is. There's actually a couple of ways, but let me just share one of them with you. If you take these kids, you know, so we put, just like in, in rich countries, all 12-year-olds in the same grade, all 13-year-olds in the same grade, but these kids are actually wildly different in their abilities. Some of these kids are far ahead of the teacher and bored, and some of these kids have no clue what's going on. But ideally, the teacher should be teaching each one of these kids at his or her own level. But of course, you can't do that in a class of, of, of 50. But what you can do is to take these kids one hour a day, put them in front of a tablet that has educational software. This educational software will very quickly figure out where exactly this guy or this girl is and start teaching at that exact level. It turns out that this costs about $21 per kid per year, but it delivers three years of schooling. So instead of going to school one year and getting one year of learning, this kid will now get three years of learning. That means the kid, when he or she grows up and goes into the workforce, they will be much more effective. They'll make much more money. Actually, it turns out that for every dollar you've spent, you will deliver about $65 of social good for that kid and for that nation. So this is just one of those amazing things where you can spend little money and do an amazing amount of good. Shouldn't we do that first? That that's the kind of practical thinking that government abhors, Bjorn. So uh, I don't know I don't know who you're talking to or what you're talking about. For our listeners, I would love for you to start with some of the ideas behind this before we dive in. The education issue I think is is truly compelling. You do this comparison between the UN adopted Millennium Development Goals, which were sort of about, you know, about child health and and about other I think really practical sounding goals. And then you talk about the transition to the 2016 sustainable development goals. For me, the word sustainable is always a red flag. Yeah. But it's not sustainable. So, no, exactly. So, but so, so talk uh, okay, a little bit about what you're reacting to in writing this book. Yes. Yes. So for the longest time, the UN has set all kinds of goals and we've never really achieved much. But in 2000, the UN set what you call the Millennium Development Goals, which was really a very, very short list of, you know, let's get people out of poverty, let's get people out of hunger, let's give them clean drinking water and sanitation, stop moms from dying, stop kids from dying, and get everybody in school. There is a little more than that, but that was pretty much what that was. And it garnered a lot of attention and got a lot of people going. We spent more money on it, and we actually achieved a lot of this. Just to give you one example, in 1990, about 12 million kids die, died each year under five. So 12 million kids died. 
And we promised to reduce that by two thirds. We didn't quite succeed, but we actually succeeded to see only six million kids dying each year in 2015. Now, again, I'm putting scare quotes around the only because obviously that's still way too many kids. But we actually have to, we, we have a situation where six million kids survive each and every year because we were smart. And then, as what you're saying, then the UN obviously wanted to you know, set new targets. And one of the things they w- were bothered about, and I, I get that, these Millennium Development Goals were really just set in a back room in the UN by about six guys. And these were literally all guys. And that doesn't quite feel right for global goals, right? So it feels like more people should be involved and we should hear more voices and all that stuff. So the UN opened it up and said, what do you think we should listen to? And when you do that, not surprisingly, you end up with a lot of, 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 of suggestions. At one point, there were, there were more than 1,400 targets in, in play. They ended up with 169 targets which is just incredibly long. I give a couple of examples. They're just, you know, almost ridiculously long. And they're certainly nowhere near what we could do. So fundamentally, in the current set of goals, which the U.S. government and every other government on the planet have signed up to, we basically promise to do all good things for everyone all the time, everywhere. So we promised that we're going to, you know, fix poverty. We're going to fix hunger. We're going to fix education. We're also going to fix corruption, war and climate change. And we're going to do all of these things and lots and lots of other things, along with making sure that everybody get organic apples and and community gardens. So it it really is just, you know, one of those things where we promised everything to everyone. Look, they're all carried with, with good intentions. But at the end of the day, of course, it's not good intentions that actually pull people out of poverty or make sure that, that kids learn or that they don't die from easily curable infectious diseases. That is that we focus on the right things. And now we're halfway. So we promised in 2016 we're going to go to 2030. So 2023, or right now, is the exact time that's half time. But we're nowhere near halfway. Depressingly, we're achieving almost nothing. The UN Secretary is is suggesting that we may actually fail on pretty much everything we promised. And that's why we're then saying, and sorry, I I think that was actually what you wanted me to start talking about. But many people just feel like the UN is a little bit sort of off off track and and the whole idea. So I just want to give the idea, this is good even if you don't buy into the UN idea. But the UN has set up all these goals. We're not going to achieve them. And so what we're saying is, why don't we do the best things first? So your your point is basically then if you're doing everything, you're doing nothing. So they, they started out with 1,400, then they whittled it down to 169. You've whittled it down to 12. <laughs> 12. And, 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 well, and talk about that. I mean, why, yes. why did you pick these 12? And why are these the things that we should be doing as opposed to others? Yes. So I should just say they, they kind of whittled them down, but mostly they just concatenate it. So they called one target all of the things above. You know, So they really didn't want to. So it's really 1,400 compressed it into 169. Of, it kind of is, yes. So <laughs> it really just is, you know, when people come up and tell me, you know, when they're campaigning for something, they're saying, oh, but we're in the global goals. And I'm like, oh, so good for you. But so is everything else. Yeah, we literally have not met any one. Well, actually, there is one, but that's it, right? We've, we've, we've which one? Almost. So it's antibiotic resistance, 
which I'm a little surprised about. But, you know, just nobody bothered to mention it, I guess. Otherwise, it would have been in there as well. So, so we've literally promised everything. And it's a very good question to say, so how did you get down to 12? And we're not even saying, you know, because remember, we're not saying fix all education. It turns out it's really hard to fix a lot of education. We're talking about fix primary education in poor countries. So it's a very, very limited thing and fix it with these very specific technologies. Don't do it with lots of other stuff. We did this. By working with lots of economists, more than 100 economists, we looked at more than 100 different priorities. So we didn't look at everything, but we really tried to look across pretty much everything that has been promised and say, what does the literature tell us? Is this going to be a phenomenal investment, a so-so investment, or not a good investment? And then we took the really phenomenal ones, and then we selected them on saying, you have to be able to get at least $15 back for every dollar you spend. So we were simply going to look for the very, very most effective ones. Look, there's, this is not a magical number. It's one that we've been using for a long time. But what, what it really just means is these 12 are going to be amazing. And that's why we picked those, those 12. We believe that there's not other you know, big ones that are left out there that would also have been amazing. So we probably have scoured the whole space. But of course, there are a lot of other ones that are pretty damn good. And we should probably also do them. But you know, I think we should do the really amazing ones first. So I, I love this list. For me, it just is the bedrock of, of what it is that is achievable. And, you know, for, I think the argument that we've been having for years and years and years, people who believe that we and that everybody should, you know, be providing foreign assistance. But, of course, the only thing we ever measure is inputs. Well, we spent X. And what I love about this list, apart from anything else, is, is one line describing it. It would only cost $35 billion a year, which is the increase in annual global spending on cosmetics over the last two years. I think it's my annual global spending on cosmetics. That's actually $35 billion. But at least it feels like it. So talk, let's dive down. You talked a little bit about educational reform. Malaria is one where I feel like, okay, that's admirable. That's critical. But we have been talking about ending malaria for 50 years. What, what are you bringing to this? So malaria is one of those things that when you when you talk to most people, they think it's a tropical disease, but it really isn't. I mean, it was endemic in 36 states in the U.S. It was regular back in, in World War II in, in Moscow and Archangel in, you know, in Finland, many other places. It's really a disease of poverty. And we have fixed much of it. You know, if you if you get richer, you treat yourself. You can also afford to have a to have screens and make sure that your kids don't die from this. You also have more livestock, so the mosquitoes will will bite the livestock instead of you, and so on. So there's a lot of things that have sort of worked really well. And also, of course, we used a lot of DDT right around World War II, the end of World War II, both in the U.S. and Italy, and many places in Asia. But malaria is still stuck in Africa. And we tend to think of this as, oh, God, can they get their you know, act together sort of thing. But that's not, that's not quite fair because, yes, it is a disease of poverty, but it's also because they have really problematic setup. So they have a mosquito that really only wants to bite humans which is just a very unfortunate outcome. That means it's much, much harder to stop. You were talking about eradicating. It turns out to be really, really hard to do. 
We could do it in the U.S. and many other places. But if you can't sort of get divert them to livestock, it turns out to be much, much harder. The second part is that the, the specific parasite of the specific, specific variant of, of malaria is just more, much more deadly in, in Africa. So we have a situation where about half a million people die each year, almost exclusively in Africa. And what we need to do is spraying and mosquito nets. It turns out that spraying is really, really difficult to do, and that's one of the reasons why we're not advocating this, because you have to do it really well. And much of this will be somewhat corrupt, and then it doesn't really work. But if you do it with mosquito nets, this is something that we've proven. We know that we can get more people sleeping under mosquito nets. They'll be insecticide-treated mosquito nets. They cost somewhere between $1 and $4 a piece. So it's not really all that much. If you get people sleeping on them and you get most people doing that, it actually dramatically reduces infection rates. And so for what is it we find the, the total cost, if we look across the whole, the rest of the decade, it'll cost about $1.1 billion dollars a year additional, but it'll save in the order of 200,000 people each and every year. By Towards the end of, of the decade, it'll save almost half of everyone who dies from malaria. So again, we're not saying let's fix all of it because it actually turns out it's probably really difficult and also possibly very ineffective to eradicate the last bit because... We don't quite know how to do that. That's probably getting Africa out of poverty, which is a whole different kind of conversation. But we do know how to reduce it dramatically at very low cost. And so, again, we find for every dollar spent, you will save so many people's lives that for every dollar spent, you'll do about $48 worth of good. That's certainly worth doing. So what I find fascinating about your proposals is that it's not just we should focus on these individual problems where we can make a difference. We should not do everything when it comes to dealing with these problems. We should find these discrete, cost-effective solutions that can have a disproportionate impact at a very low cost. T talk to us about some other examples. Yeah. So, so actually, I just want to get back to education because I, I sort of covered what we should do. But there's a lot of stuff out there that tells us what you shouldn't do. And, and so one of the good examples is Indonesia back in the early 2000s. Indonesia decided they were going to double their spending on education, which is, of course, very laudable. They put it into their constitution and they doubled the amount of, of public spending on education. So they have hired many more teachers. They've hired more than a million more teachers. They have doubled the, the pay for each individual teacher. Indonesia has one of the lowest class ratios in the world. Unfortunately, it's not helped at all. So there's a, there's a big study that's been cited enormously because of the way they put it. They, they actually implemented this. It happened in different regions at different times. So you could make a, a pseudo-randomized controlled trial. And this very famous paper is called Double for Nothing. So what they found was that you spent twice as much money, but you got absolutely no impact on learning. Now, the teachers are much, much more happy. So there is that. You know, if you pay them twice as much, not surprisingly, they're very happy. But you didn't actually improve the indicator that you aimed to do. And this tells us a very important thing, and that goes exactly to your point of saying, it's not enough to just identify and say, oh, we want to do something about education. Well, there's a lot of ways that you can actually spend more money on education and do very little or no good. So reducing class sizes is a typical uh, argument. It does do a little bit, but typically very little at very high cost. 
Likewise, building more schools typically turns out to be nice, actually, because it reduces your travel time for the kids, but it doesn't actually have any effect on, on learning. There are lots of these studies that show this has no or very little impact. But what we identified is these two amazing things. So one is, as I mentioned, basically teaching each kid at the right level. That is getting the kid to learn more. The other one is to make the teacher better. So remember, most teachers, especially in poor countries, are just marginally better than the than the kids that they're that they're teaching. They don't get paid very much, and they, you know, honestly, they they, they when you go to their classes, studies show that about forty percent of the classes seem entirely unplanned. You know, they're just sort of rambling on us, as you might remember some of your bad teachers from from primary school. And what you should do is have semi-structured teacher plans. So if you make these plans, this is what you should teach this class. This is what you should teach this week. This is how you get through. These are the questions you can ask. And teach the teachers to teach better. And Kenya is now doing this. Turns out that this is very, very cheap. It costs about $8 per kid per year. But it'll make the teachers teach much better. And actually, the kids will learn about two years of learning for every one year they go to school. So again, amazing outcome. This is the kind of thing that we should do. And so we do this in a lot of different ways, not just on education and malaria, as we talked about, but also on maternal and newborn health or on agricultural research and development. Let me just give you two very quick sort of senses on, on, on those two. Maternal and newborn health. What drives me up the wall, I, I only learned this when we started doing this research, is that 2.3 million people die each year around pregnancy. So about 300,000 moms and 2.3 million kids. We could do something about that very, very easily. It's just simply making sure that you have better care before and especially during the delivery. So get women into institutional birth and make sure that those institutions actually have some really basic emergency and obstetric care. This could be one thing, and again, I didn't know this, more than 700,000 kids die each year because they never breathe or they, they stop breathing in the, in the first hour of their life. And, and this happens even in rich countries. We know that about 5% of all kids that are born need to have positive air pressure. You need to put a mask and give them some air into their lungs to get them breathing. We do that in the rich world. You need this very, very simple little bag, you know, basically a plastic mask and a little bag that you pump. Then you pump air into the kid and you give that kid a much better chance of surviving. This costs perhaps $65 and you can save in the order of 25 kits over the three years it'll last. So again, if you do all of these things, and, and again, this is a systemic thing. I'm not trying to say we should have a GoFundMe for, for just this plastic mask. It's a lot of different things we want to get in into the hospitals, very simple things. We could save in the order of 166,000 moms and about 1.2 million kids each and every year. So $5 billion you could save in the order of 1.4 million people each and every year. This is just one of the best things we could do. So you've ticked off a number of statistics of this could save this many million, hundreds of thousands or millions of people. These 12 goals, if you add it up, how many lives could be saved or improved? What are your statistics for the whole, for the whole yes. shebang? 
Oh, thank you. So we we do actually sum that up. So we have a table in, in the book where we show all of these, and because they're very, very unconnected, you can you can just simply sum up all of them. So it turns out that for $35 billion, as, as, as Danny mentioned earlier on, $35 billion, so literally couch change in the global setup, we could save 4.2 million lives each and every year and make the poorer half of the world about one point one trillion dollars better off each and every year so this is remember there's about four billion people in the poor half of the world so that means almost one dollar per person per day in the poor half of the world we could do such good for fairly little money and that's again why we estimate the total benefit cost ratio is for every dollar spent we'll do 52 dollars worth of good why should we do so much good for so little money when we can do so little good for so much money? Yeah. Those are yeah. so I, that I leaves that's me. a slightly rhetorical question, but yes. Yes, no, I know, question. exactly. It was just for allow me to get that one liner out there. But so a lot of what we've talked about is sort of basic mother and child health, basic, you know, agriculture issue, really sort of the, you know, building building blocks of, of, of humanity, if you want to call it that. One of your issues, though, is about governance, and it's something near and dear to to our hearts. It's not an issue that gets enough attention and not an issue that gets enough serious work done. And that is the question of corruption. You have a really simple, neat little suggestion and tell everybody about it. Yes. So look, again, we know corruption is a huge issue. And I should just mention that all of the other solutions that we just talked about, we are already assuming that there will be a lot of corruption and a lot of incompetence. You know, we're, we're not assuming extraordinary amounts of corruption and, and incompetence, but just sort of ordinary. Just uh, the usual, of, the usual the incompetence usual. and corruption. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> we're, we're not assuming that we're going to be fantastically smart. We're assuming that the planet will go on being about as good as we are. We know how to do things, but yes, there'll also be corruption, all kinds of, of incompetence and so on. So these are realistic estimates of what we can actually achieve. But clearly... It'd be lovely to try to find a way to get rid of a lot of corruption. Now, there's a lot of ways that we don't know how to do that. But there is one way, as you point out. And again, we're simply picking up on the really, really low-hanging fruit. This is called e-procurement. And again, as you say, it sounds incredibly boring. But the reality is the biggest purchaser of goods and services in most economies is the government. And this is especially true in poor countries. So anything from post-it notes to roads. But obviously roads is, you know, the, the major public works is the major part of this. And it's hugely corrupt. We know this from a lot of studies, but obviously it's hard to do something about. So we worked in Bangladesh, for instance, where you know, they have good legislation. So the, the, the rule is that you hand in a bit, sealed envelope with your bid after it's been advertised in a government newspaper to a particular government office, and then they open up and then they see who has the lowest bid. But the truth is that very often the local elite has already decided, well, you know, Danny, you're going to have the, the bid. Well, there you go. You just made a lot of money. And then they put up goons outside this government office so you literally can't come in with your with your sealed envelope and that's it so you got the bid if you put this online so if you actually put this a little bit like ebay you have the whole country asking for all of its procurement over the internet it makes it easier for more companies to bid 
more companies will know about this, and it's harder, not impossible, but harder to be corrupt on this. It's harder to put up your goons, right? And so what happens, and we know this empirically, it reduces the price that the government has to pay for its, for its goods and services, and that means you have more money left over. Now, this money goes out from, from the people who otherwise would have been corrupt, but in a cost-benefit analysis, that's actually not taken as a cost. So what we find is this is an incredibly good way to make sure that ordinary people and governments get more for their money. It also turns out, actually, that you end up typically with higher quality because more people will be bidding on it. You can also have better procurement. So during COVID, we know that these governments who did have e-procurement, most rich countries do by now, they were better able to get ventilators and other goods very quickly because you can use this very quickly with an e-procurement system. So there's, there's virtually no downside. There are lots of upsides, and it's incredibly cheap. So the total cost of doing e-procurement in a country is in the order of 20 million dollars not billion but million dollars so even if you do it as badly as for instance south korea you know it still costs you maximally a couple hundred million dollars and you can save literal billions of dollars and so what we find is it'll cost in total so there's about you know seven countries who still haven't done this it'll cost about 76 million dollars a year but it'll deliver benefits of about 10 billion dollars. So again, a payback of about $125 back in the dollar. So one of the costs of us not paying attention to boring stuff is that we miss out on the really great things. So one of my favorites is dearest to my heart is highly skilled migration. You point out that if every country took in 10% more skilled migrants, the costs over 25 years would be 55 billion, but the benefits would be $1 trillion. Talk about that. Why is that important? So economists will tend to say, remember, we work with a lot of economists, and, and sort of the standard argument is to say that people are misallocated. So you have a lot of people who work for very little pay, mostly in poor countries, essentially doing the same work as people who make a lot more for their services in rich countries. A sort of stereotypical example is a McDonald worker in, in Ethiopia will make about one-tenth or one-fifteenth of what the similar worker will be making in America. So clearly, there's a huge opportunity to actually get people where there's much higher productivity. The problem, of course, is that also has a lot of downsides. It, you know, the, the most important one is that it'll have a lot of political costs to move a very large part of the world's population to rich countries. Some economists will say there's literally trillion-dollar bills lying on the, on the floor that we could just you know, get a lot more migration. That's unlikely, both implausible politically, but probably also very, very hard to imagine that this is actually true economically. But if you focus on skilled migration, so take doctors, engineers, some of the really highly educated STEM workers, the benefit of moving someone from low-pay countries to high-pay countries is potentially enormous. It's also good for the receiving countries, so typically for the rich country, because we have too few kids and too many retirees in the long run, and this could mitigate some of that. But isn't that, uh, but, but Bjorn, let me ask you about that, but isn't that 
intrinsically controversial because you're taking that highly skilled labor and that critical piece in development out of those poorer yes, countries? It exactly is. And it's typically mentioned as, as brain drain. So we're taking all the really smart doctors out. Well, we're not actually taking all of them out because as Mark also pointed out, there's 10% that we're suggesting, but we are taking some of them out. There's two things that mitigate this. One is that it actually makes it more interesting to become a doctor if you know that you have a chance to, for instance, move to the U.S. We see that in a lot of countries. So you actually end up being a production unit. So many poor countries will produce more really smart doctors, some of which will go to the U.S. But also because this doctor will go for 35 years or their whole career, they will send back remittances, which of course is part of the of the benefit that we've already calculated. But that means those very stable remittances will mean that the people back home will be more likely to educate themselves. They will have more opportunity to get better health care, better education. They will then become smarter and better. And so even for the sending country, this is very likely a pretty good deal. It's not a fantastic deal. So we're we're talking about two dollars back in the dollar. But for the whole world it's a great idea. So it you know it gives you about twenty dollars back in the dollar. But even for the poor countries, the brain drain is much smaller than the total income gain that they will get from their remittances and, and increased education. So everyone wins, but not equally much. And of course, you also have to have that conversation about saying, look, many countries will not want to have as many immigrants. This, this is a very clear conversation. That's why we looked at a 10% increase, because that means you know countries like Canada, that's already decided to have a lot of immigrants, skilled immigrants, they will probably want to have more, you know, so 10% more of a fairly large number, whereas some countries who've decided, no, we don't really want many immigrants, will have 10% of a very low number. But yes, it is, a, it is a good investment, but it is a somewhat more politically challenging recommendation. But again, what we're essentially saying is, here are 12 amazing things. You don't need to pick all of them. I'd love for you to pick all of them. But, you know, really, I just want to pick a few of them at least. So these are more sort of a smorgas, smorgas. It's even it's a Swedish name, but I'm not sure how you say it in, in English. Smorgas, gas board. Smorgasbord. How do you say uh, it in Swedish? Ah, uh, I'm not Swedish, right? Smorgasbord. But that that's not here nor there, right? So no wonder uh, we don't say it in Swedish. Yes, yes, that's why you don't. So it's you know it's a, it's a great opportunity. It's a list of all these things you can choose, and then let's make sure that we choose some of them. So, Bjorn, I, I have an exit question about this because, okay, you've, you've come with all of these great ideas that have the virtue, I think, of, of huge benefits, not huge expenditures, but a lot of simplicity, a lot of bang for the, the buck. But I think one of the critical things that you've mentioned in this podcast more than once is not just the importance of having good ideas, but the importance of not choosing bad ideas. Most of the spending that we are now doing is on bad ideas. How do we how do we fix that? <laughs> well, if I had the simple answer, I, I, I we would be in a much better place. I, I think fundamentally the reason why you know, democracy spend a lot of money is because it gets politicians reelected. So it's the kind of thing that has great PR is the kind of thing that has lots of crying babies or cute puppies or whatever, you know, the things that make the news. And, and so it's not surprising that we're spending 
a lot of resources and things that only do fairly little good. I actually tend to think that most of the things we do are not you know, totally lost, but, but you know, there's a lot of things that we do that are only so-so. I think what this book really does is it helps us identify here are some amazing things. It makes it easier for people who are arguing for we should be spending more on malaria or tuberculosis or maternal and newborn health that this is actually one of the world's 12 best things to do. You know, it simply gives tailwind to the good ideas and headwind to the bad ones. So for a very long time, my, my think tank, the Copenhagen Consensus, has worked with more than 300 of the world's top economists and seven Nobel laureates in economics, trying to identify what are smart and what are not smart things. And when we make a whole list of it and say, this is the smartest, this is the second smartest, and all the way down to this is the dumbest and please don't do this, the focus, and this goes back to the main problem, is almost invariably on the dumbest things. You know, newspapers love that because it's someone's fault and, you know, it becomes, and then of course it very easily becomes a political conversation because some people love this idea and some people hate it. And, 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 and then you lose the whole clarity conversation and just get mired into this political discussion. So I think in that sense, what we've done with this book is just talk about the really great things. So I'm not talking about all the stuff that we shouldn't be doing. This is so cheap that you almost can go on spending all the money on, on, on not very smart things. But, you know, please, please, please just spend $35 billion first on the really smart stuff. That's essentially what I'm trying to do. And I think that's an easier sell because it doesn't harm anyone. It doesn't piss off anyone. It simply says, look, we're a smart species. We know that there are some things that are amazing. Shouldn't we get those done first? So exit question for me, and I'm going to talk, take, talk about the elephant in the room that we haven't discussed yet. I, I scoured your list of 12 best things we can do, and I didn't find stopping the rise of global temperatures. And yes. so I, is this an omission on your part, or is, this, or is that on the list of the dumbest things, please don't do this? We just had a podcast recently with Todd Moss about talking about how in the developing world, we're imposing these horrific, you know, restrictions on on fossil fuels that are hampering development and leaving people in poverty. But it seems like right now with sort of the the community of people who want to change the world, if it's not climate, it does, you know, it doesn't sell. Talk to us a little bit about about where climate fits in on this and how, and are we focused on the wrong thing? So I just talked to Danny about how I didn't want to get into this. And then, of course, you asked that particular question. <laughs> well, uh, I waited for the end. <laughs> th thank you. No, but, and, and it is an important issue because, again, as I point out, you know, we spend, what, about $1.1 trillion on climate each and every year. We spend about $2 trillion on, on military. And we spend $5 trillion on education globally. So clearly, you know, the money is out there. We spend about, what, $110 billion dollars in, on cosmetics, as, as Danny mentioned very early on, right? So we can certainly afford these $35 billion. But it is true that a very large part of the conversation is about climate change. And so I do actually mention it. I, I go through why it's not on the top list. And that's because all the major studies show, even if you do, so you know, climate is a real problem, and it certainly is something we should address. But even if you do really, really well, 
you can't make it do $15 back on the dollar. You know, sort of a global coordinated carbon tax will give you $2 back on the dollar, which is a good thing. You know, we would certainly take that if we were companies. If you could get $2 back on every dollar, you would certainly do that. But it requires a lot more specificity, and you have to be very careful that you do it well so that it doesn't fall down below $1 back on the dollar. And certainly a lot of the things that we're doing in climate right now are more sort of feel-good measures that have you know fairly little benefit cost. So one estimate for for the Paris Agreement, for instance, is that it delivers 11 cents back on the on the dollar, which of course is not very good. You could have given the dollar away and done what 89 cents more good. Uh, but 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 the fundamental point here is not to say that in a perfect world we should do all great things. That's not what I'm arguing here. And I think that's a much, much easier way to not ending up pissing off large parts of the constituents that actually have to come up with this money. Simply saying, look, whatever else you want to spend your money on, let's make sure we spend the first $35 billion on the very, very best things. Then we can go back to spending all this other money. So it's not that, you know, there are some smart ways. Adaptation gives you a couple of dollars back on the dollar. If you get more green energy, potentially, if you do it smartly, you can probably do $3, maybe $4 back on the dollar. There's a lot of places in developing countries where a little bit of renewable energy is actually a good thing. A lot of it, and, and that's probably what you talked to Todd Moss about, that turns out to be really costly, as we're also finding out in rich countries. And, and again, you know, there's some supply issues. If we spent more money on research and development in green energy, we could probably deliver as much as $11 back on the dollar. So there are definitely things we should be doing and be considering doing but if you want to do a lot of good this is not the first place you want to start that is those 12 amazing things that you know just everyone in the world really ought to be able to come together and undoing and i think that's one of the crucial bits if we can leave that conversation with saying not only is this amazing to do but i also think in some way it has this amazing opportunity to bring us all together in this hyper-polarized world we can all sort of agree spending a little money on doing amazing good is probably a good thing to do, right? If you want to put it very sort of bluntly, the left one likes to spend money and the right likes to spend it, you know, maybe not spend very much, but spend it really well. Hey, if we spent, you know, a little money incredibly effectively, that's hard not to say yes to. You're, you're doing a terrible thing, which is bringing people together around, around things they can agree on. I, I, I'm, shame on you. This is not, this is not where our politics is going. It's not what's intended. I'm, 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 I'm just ashamed to have you on. <laughs> <laughs> but more seriously, thank you. A, a, yeah. Just a, an outstanding book. And really, you know, I mean, I've seen it reviewed in a, in a bunch of places, but I really commend it to, to our listeners and to everybody. Thank you for doing it. Thank you so much. It was great to be on. That's awesome. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.